Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1954 film La Strada. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Um, Barrett, this is uh, a, a movie I was very excited about because uh, Fellini is a canonical filmmaker um, who I have very little experience with. Um, so I guess I usually I ask you your history. I'll start with with mine. Uh, just because it it shaped the way I, I walked into this movie, which is I've only seen one Fellini film, um, and I bet you can guess what it is because it's the one that sort of tops lists and things like this. It's eight and a half. Um, so that I walked into this ex- expecting, oh, that's what a Fellini movie is like, mm. uh, and it was very interesting to watch this because at, my first impression was this seems nothing like eight and a half. But the more I watched it, I'm like, actually. Maybe there is a there is a relationship between those, but I need to think about where this is on his arc. What is your history with this film? Well, first I'll, I'll start with my history with Fellini. Um, since you asked, uh, <laughs> I uh, my first Fellini film was actually On Record, uh, uh, which sometimes gets grouped with La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half as his three master three of his later masterpieces um so i saw on record actually the year it came out 1974 so that was my first experience of fellini um and then i saw of course eight and a half um but i will confess that i had never seen all of la strada until recently i'd seen bits and pieces of it somehow like it, it would show up on tv and and i remember sim see seeing some of those scenes and feeling and feeling that the film was somehow very unsettling. I, I think it was something about Gelsamina's face. Uh, and maybe I saw one of those scenes where she's got the clown makeup on. And of course, that is something that's very Fellini-esque. We'll talk about that with this film. Um, so the film had always had this kind of weird existence in my mind as something that I had glimpsed on TV for like five minutes. And it just seemed sort of strange. It was probably, if, since it was on TV, it was most likely dubbed as well which is the other thing that would give you, I mean, I always found dub stuff when I was a kid kind of weird to watch. And so the film always had to make kind of this weirdness about it. Like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to understand it, or I'm not sure I'm going to be able to like it. So it was really interesting coming to it um, 40 years later. Huh. That's, that, that's, that's fascinating. And I, I can, I can imagine especially certain scenes that if you saw them, out of because when you see them in context they're strange if you saw them a little bit more out of context like like if you just saw the wedding feast scene mm. that would be such a strange thing to to watch and try to uh and try to make sense of particularly the scene when they when she goes up to meet oswaldo yes and, and it's and it's i mean unsettling is is the right word I mean, uh, we'll probably circle back to this but one of the things you mentioned about this movie when you picked it was that this is a movie that David Lynch really likes. Yeah, yeah. And I was I was watching it, trying to think. You know, when it first started, like, I wonder what Lynch likes about this movie. And then there are moments where I'm like, oh, okay, this is. I, I can understand there 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 are moments um, that uh, that that unsettle in a kind, not exactly in the way Lynch does, but there are moments where it's like, oh, I feel like 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 they're vibrating at us at a similar frequency. Yeah, you know. Uh... Uh, uh, there's a list somewhere of Lynch's top 10 films, supposedly, and uh, Fellini's on it twice. Uh, one of them is Eight and a Half, which is, has a much more obvious connection to Lynch. I think in addition to what you've mentioned, um, Sam, because I thought a lot about that. Why did Lynch like this film? 
one of the articles I read pointed out that um, Lynch loves the theme of women in trouble. Hmm. Uh, that's a real. If you think about all of Lynch's films, that's that's pretty consistent in mo in most of them, or at least a lot of them. Certainly, Mulholland Drive is a good example of two women in trouble. Um, so I think the idea that uh, Gulsamina is kind of a woman in trouble. And what does that reveal about her character? How does that develop her character? What situations does that create? I think that's one of the things that Lynch really would, would gravitate towards in this film. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about a word you've already used that, and it's impossible to read about Fellini and not encounter somebody just saying the word Fellini-esque. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting because people do it and, they, and they'll, they'll point to something and say, well, that is that is the definition of Fellini-esque instead of defining Fellini-esque. So I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, you like definitions of words. What, 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 what does that word mean? Well, I, th I think, I think it, well, first of all, I think you're, you're right, Sam, that it, it can mean a variety of things depending on who's, use, who's using it. So there's almost a pejorative meaning for Fellini-esque. Uh, Fellini-esque can, for some people, mean, uh, I, I forget where I picked this up, but self-indulgent creation for the sake of expression. I mean, I th so I think so like one of the things that people often say about Fellini is uh, that um, he, yeah, self, his films are self-indulgent. He allows himself a certain amount of excess. Um, but I think one of the things that is Fellini-esque is, um, well, Roger Ebert would say a lot of the visual trademarks that you see in this film, circuses, parades, um, odd, uh, things, that are, things that are odd or unusual or carnivalesque. Um, so I would say Fellini, Fellini-esque often uh, moves, it's, it's almost like um, uh, surrealism at times. Uh, and it, but, but at the same time, it's the intersection or the meeting place, and this is also Lynchian in some respects too, it's the meeting place of the surreal and, and, and the ordinary uh, or the, the everyday. And I think that's one of the reasons why people see La Strada as kind of the first Fellini-esque film because he has his roots in neorealism he worked with Roberto Rossellini on a couple of films. Uh, and so you can see how there's a neorealist element to this film, if you think back to Bicycle Thieves. So, so it's it's grounded in reality, but at the same time, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the wedding feast, for example, and then visiting Oswaldo. It's like you're in the real world, and all of a sudden it's like something is happening, and you're like, well, what just happened? Reality just kind of got just kind of got tilted. Uh, or upended, or something from outside of reality has suddenly inserted itself. So to me, that's Fellini-esque. There's also, uh, at times, almost a, a dream-like logic to events. Sometimes, in later Fellini, literally dreams being presented to you. So I think that's that range of things is what people mean by Fellini-esque. Well, and what's interesting, in, at least in this movie, is the things that are that seem otherworldly, at the same time, they're not entirely they're not so fancifully otherworldly in this movie where where it takes you out of like out of it so i mean for example right. osvaldo is also just a boy up in that room like yeah. like like it's not like he's a monster or something mm -hmm. she encounters but but the way that it is filmed and and her reaction to it is um is points you to to say like there's something about this and and then her response when she comes down and talks with um with zampano about it and and she's trying to describe what she saw and clearly she is uh 
unsettled by it has some kind of connection to it i noticed one other i don't know why we're i'm focusing on this scene right at the jump but this is this is maybe my favorite scene in the movie um another thing that 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 i noticed watching this is it is a perfect example of um and obviously i'm I'm quoting something which is going to come far later than fellini of like spielberg face if you know what I mean by this, like 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 Spielberg is famous for mm. especially a child and Jesselmina mm. is child like like you watching them see something before you see it mm-hmm. because it's almost like she steps into the mm-hmm. light and you're seeing this kind of wonder mm-hmm. and awe on her face and you and you just want to be like please tell me what she's looking at you know and then we finally get the cut over and it's the the cut to Osvaldo is all there I think it cuts twice and it's always so short that you mm-hmm. can't quite tell like yeah. What, what is it about this? Because at one level, it's a boy sitting in a bed and you're like, I, I don't, that doesn't seem yeah. that strange, but yeah. everything is built to make it feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think she says his head was shaped like a moon or something like mm-hmm. something like that. And I would also point out, since we are looking at La Strada because of David Lynch, so I'll indulge myself. I think that characters like Mr. Roke uh, in Mahalan Drive owe, owe their origin to a Fellini-esque kind of imagination. Now, uh, one of the most interesting things that I read about Fellini, this comes from the Deep Focus Review essay on La Strada, Mm. um, and I'm sure this is a fact you were going to mention, so I'll try to beat you to it, is that uh, his two career ambitions when he was young Mm -hmm. were to be either a journalist or a painter. Yes. And it's so interesting to think about this movie, and this movie feels like it is made by a journalist and a painter. I mean, because this is closer to his roots of italian neorealism so it does have that at first i when it first started i thought oh is that what this movie's gonna be i didn't realize he you know came because i didn't read anything about him when i first started like i didn't realize he came from sort of this school of filmmaking and then you realize well he's not actually interested in the things that are um uh, sort of the core ideology of at least versions of Italian neorealism. And for that reason, this movie is very controversial among uh, uh, critics and filmmakers in Italy who are sort of expecting it to be one thing and are very upset that it is not. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. Ultimately, the film garners a lot of awards and a lot of acclaim, but you're right. When it initially comes out, there's just nobody quite knows what to do with it. The Marxist critics don't like it. The Christian critics don't like it. Audience is a little bit baffled by it. Um, I want to get back to, to neorealism and Rossellini for a minute, though, because um, one of the uh, one of the part of one of the books I read on Fellini says that his his Rossellini's influence on him wasn't so much stylistic, although I think you do see that in this film, but more uh, moral and artistic. And, and uh, the critic says that uh, Rossellini gave him a vision of the authenticity of artistic experience, uh, the moral imperative to take his subjects, the dilemmas of modern man or woman, uh, to uh, depict them with integrity. And it's so making them, on the one hand, universal, but on the other hand, also kind of very particularly Italian. So I think it's that, and, and that gets back to your point about that's both the, that's the journalist and the artist kind of working together. The journalist grounded in reality, the artist reflecting imagination. And Fellini, again, Fellini-esque is often taken to be the highly autobiographical element of his films. Uh, often in his later films, Marcello Mastrioni kind of uh, is his alter ego, uh, although Fellini claimed that all he ever did in his films was tell lies. Uh, but it's quite clear that, you know, what goes on in the films reflects Fellini's life. He is, of course, married to Juliette Messina, 
So people read often a lot of what's going on in their marriage, even into the films. Yeah. I, I, when you tell me that he says, uh, all I ever put up on the screen is lies. It's like, well, yeah, of course you, you're going to say that. Like, like that's, <laughs> that's, that's the very thing I expect you to say, but that doesn't mean I have to, I have to believe that. That's right. um, I mean, it seems like even, and I, I could be wrong on this, but it seemed like it, like in my reading, even for someone like Rossellini, it turns out that like, that uh, Fellini in something like La Strada is just on the vanguard of sort of saying like, because Rossellini eventually is like, well, we have to move past yeah. the kind of didactic uh, neorealism to these other things, you know? So, so it's just, it's just Fellini is, is the, the first person in that movement to fly from it, um, you know, in, in a kind of way. So you've already, you've already mentioned the heart of this movie. This movie is not this movie without Giulietta Messini uh, as Jesselmina. Um, I think I told you I watched this on Friday, and I told you at Film Forum that I've added another uh, another person to my pantheon of like amazing actress performances. Uh, I was blown away. She jumps off the screen um, in this movie and has one of the great. This is going to sound strange. One of the great character introductions in the same way we talk about. Um, uh, Orson Welles in the third man is a great character induction, except in this one, it's like the character introduction isn't the first time we see the character. It, it happens a little bit later, you know, so, so we first encounter her as this sort of, you know, poor girl walking out of an Italian neorealist film right on mm. the seashore with her family who's sold away. Um, and, you know, there, and she has this mix of sadness and excitement, but then there is the, the, the training scene. And mm-hmm. before before we get to the the painful part of the training scene, mm-hmm. there is the moment where uh, Zampano is putting hats on her, and when he puts the bowler hat on her, mm-hmm. this is where the character arrives, and it's I mean it is the shark in Jaws, it is uh, it is Orson Welles in the Third Man. She is a shapeshifter and transforms into <laughs> something else, I mean, and it's I could watch that scene over and over and over again just of like seeing something inside of her absolutely come to life. And it's interesting because she had taught when she was uh, in her hometown before she leaves, she's talking to somebody about how she's going to learn to sing and dance like Rosa. And so there's this kind of excitement, but it's like it is realized in totality almost in that moment. And we get this glimpse of what's possible with her. And then throughout the movie, we see other little glimpses of this part of her, even though we don't get this magic transformed part of her throughout the whole movie we get moments of it that's really interesting sam because one one of the perspectives on the film that is often critical is um that there's there's a sense that her staying with sopano is completely unmotivated or or mysterious and i think that I don't have a problem with her staying with him. I think it's actually very interesting. We can talk more about that. But I think part of the reason maybe why she stays with him is exactly what you're identifying, that it's it's as though with him, she realizes this inner identity that she didn't know she had, that she's sort of she's sort of born to play the clown or the or and 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 so she actually benefits. She enjoys being part of these performances. So it's not just that she's some kind of a masochist or she feels trapped. And there are times when she wants to walk away, but she is an artist in her own right. And he enables her to fulfill that destiny. Right. He also crushes that destiny too. I mean, because, because he, 
and this is what's great about this arc and we'll get into this is like uh whenever she performed i mean we we see him perform so many times and we see him perform the same thing and what we see coming so so he feels like the i am doing this kind of rote thing that i know works and we're going to do this and she she feels like like this symbol of this like well of potential and potential creativity that because because you just don't know what could come out of her and when you watch her perform even in the silly farce that they do like she is so much more alive and you can mm. tell she's stealing the show you know in in those moments i i think i was trying to think about how i think about jesselmina and throughout the movie she's like this perfect blend and and again all i can think of is like almost like shape-shifting like like it, she changes from one thing to another so at some t- at times she feels like a, you're watching a child mm-hmm. at times she feels like you're watching a mother i mean i feel like i feel like the one thing she isn't to zampano is a wife right she feels <laughs> like a child and a mother at times she feels like she is a perfect embodiment of a particular clown she also is a saint like she is all of those things she has the and when i say saint i, I thought a lot about saying this and 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 she has the kind of purity and simplicity that i associate with a lot of you know actual historical medieval saints when i think about them like i think there is a kind of um simplicity that allows somebody to have a particular view of the world and i think she carries that because she and that allows her to be um at times almost like unaffected isn't the right word because she's definitely affected by the things around her but she's allowed to move through the world without being destroyed by it for a long time because she it it, it, it creates a kind of resilience for her because this should be a movie where she where she is um she shouldn't last this long, I guess, is what I is what I'm feeling when I think about what's happening to her. But may, whether that's the the clown or the saint in her that helps her do that, um, I, it, I I'm I, I'm so moved by it. And now I don't think all I don't think of all saints like I don't think of Thomas Aquinas as a simple saint. But I do think of like there is a degree to when, when I think about someone like Francis of Assisi. I think like well, I think he probably. Not that he was a simple person, but I think he had a kind of simplicity to his view of life, which allowed him to live in the world in a particular way. And I think she has sparks of that. Well, certainly the idea of living on the road is a very Franciscan uh, orientation to to life. Um, You know, even though there is a character in the film named The Fool, um, I I actually was thinking of her along the lines you were thinking Sam, in fact, I was thinking of her uh, in, in the tradition, of, not only the tradition of the saint, but the tradition of the holy fool, mm-hmm. um, like the idiot in, uh, in Dostoevsky's novel. And that person has the exact quality you're talking about. They seem to be able to go through life, even though life often throws a lot of terrible things at them and they may suffer terribly. They seem to retain a kind of basic innocence. Uh, and I think that's one of the qualities that Josemina has, right? There's a sense that despite all these experiences, and it's not, I think naivete is different from innocence. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's not naivete, but it's the sense of, um, if it's not too strong a word, almost an uncorrupted soul. Um, you know, these, these terrible things happen, and yet she somehow um, maintains uh, until the death of the fool. Uh, you know, she's able to maintain a kind of... Um, 
optimism is the wrong word because there's something more spiritual about it. Um, and yet at the same time, even though she could, even though it feels like of all the, of all the places that she goes, it feels like the convent is the right place for her. It's like if there was any place she was ever going to settle down as home, it would be the convent. And I think it's very interesting that she leaves the convent and the nun waves goodbye to her the way the nun is standing next to a very large crucifix. Uh, and there's the sense that, you know, there's, there's, Josephine is kind of off to, well, I mean, I think if not, if it's not putting too fine a point on it, a, a kind of a sacrificial death, because mm -hmm. uh, we'll have to talk about the effect of her death on, on Zampano. Um, so anyway, so I, I increasingly, as the film went along, you know, my notes were, I think she's a holy fool. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, and I, I like the way you put that in. And that's what you're articulating is what I was trying to say with simple, because I don't mean simple as simple minded. I mean, simple right. as a kind of simplicity that that allows for a kind of depth of experience and understanding. Almost. Yeah, the, the, simple, the simplicity is referred to in the Shaker Ham, right? It's a gift to be simple. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's simplicity. The, okay, so the and and so the other thing that I thought about then was um, on my in my pantheon is another saint performance. When I think of Falconetti yes. in Joan of Arc, and I was trying to um, this is a, a warped thing my brain did, but it was like I was trying to picture um, Julietta Messini playing Joan of Arc, and I realized <laughs> it would be it would be too painful to watch her endure what yeah, Joan of Arc yeah. does, which makes me think about like the restraint that, um, that Fellini shows when, that the last time we see Jesselmina, she's asleep and we find out what happens to her, but we don't have to watch that Yeah, because like, I, I, I can take Falconetti and what, what she has to go through I, with her, but I, I don't think I could do it with, um, uh, with, with Jesselmina. I, I think that would be too much for me. And for what it's worth, not that I think that an actor or even a director has the final word on the meaning of a character. Uh, Fellini and Messina had very different views of this character. Um, Fellini uh, saw her as a kind of a fighter uh, who's enduring um, this harsh reality by escaping into her mind. Uh, Messina saw her actually as an ill-fated Cinderella, which hmm. is another, which is which is an interesting image, right? Because uh, when you think about you know Cinderella getting dressed up to go to the ball, you think about Cinderella's you know hoping for her prince charming, and uh, Zampano is anything but that. That's that's kind of an interesting. I mean, I, I like that interpretation uh, much more, but it also ends up you get kind of different perspectives on what who the main character of the film is or whose story the film really is absolutely no because that that's one of the things that i found interesting about this movie is um there's clearly an arc that jesselmina is on um and in what and when he i was thinking about the structure of this movie and the, the rough structure of this movie is um, from the moment she leaves her hometown, so, so we should say it starts at the sea. That matters that we start at the sea because the sea yeah. is significant, right? Um, and then we get this this structure, which is basically travel, a performance, kind of the aftermath of that performance, which can which manifests in a lot of different ways, whether it's the farmhouse or in the the restaurant, and then when the when 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 Zampano leaves with the other woman. And there's there's lots of aftermaths. The training is an aftermath, right? And then um 
they're almost all punctuated with an opportunity to leave, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and, 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 and it's like, we, we get versions of that. And then within that, he creates all of these different experiences. So it, the movie doesn't feel repetitive, but it does feel like there is that, like, we keep going back to that structure, which makes it this kind of road. I mean, it's called La Strada is the street or the road. And it yeah. makes this a road movie in that way is like, we're going to have these little adventures, but they're all like, punctuated in this structure and and what's interesting is you know like i said they, they mostly end with an opportunity for jesselmina to leave and what's what i find cool about this movie is sometimes she does yeah sometimes she does sometimes so it's not that she is always like resigned to where she is i mean there is a, a pretty significant moment where she leaves now embedded in that thinking about her arc as we watch those performances we watch her develop as an artist you know, mm-hmm. the first time we see Zampano perform, she's just sitting in the mm-hmm. in the the carriage. The next time she's dressed up as the clown and she steals the show. The next time is the wedding feast, and Zampano's the one playing the drum. And you see Jesselmina is the one who's dancing. She's the one who's calling out to the people, right? She is on she is on a kind of arc of development, which is going to get pushed down and crushed. But um, and you know, and then we see her learn the trumpet. We see, you know, like like there is. So she's on this arc. And what I didn't realize until the very end, and I think the the Martin Scorsese introduction on the Criterion helped me get my head around this a little bit was, I didn't think of Zampano on an arc in this movie until I realized he was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really powerful because I I sort of thought he is this sort of obstacle for her. He, I didn't I didn't even consider him as a character really until mm-hmm. I got to the end and it made me step back and say, oh, okay. And 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 I'll say this and then I'll, I'll hand it off to you because I've been talking for a while here. But um this movie helped me understand Raging Bull better. Yeah. Because because Scorsese references this. He says, yeah. like, in a way, I've been making Zampano stories mm-hmm. with with De Niro. So he talks about taxi driver, but then then there he's he mentions Raging Bull, and I was like, oh my goodness. I get it. I get yes. I get something that I a move because I've always loved Raging Bull, but never fully mm-hmm. had. There's something I was missing there, and this it's like it shed light on it when he mentioned that. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting connection. Um, you know, it's I, I I I bought the idea that the film. Is, I mean, I think it's both about about Chelsea but I think it's also about Zampano. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the critics I read who is kind of resistant to this film um, contrasts it, as long as we're talking about neorealism, contrasts it with Bicycle Thieves. And his complaint about Lustrada by comparison is he says, I don't feel like these people have any interior life. Um, I think that's wrong. But he says that especially about Zampano. So he said for him, he didn't really care. That Zapano is on this on this arc, and I, I don't I don't quite know what to do with a criticism like that because um, I didn't feel as though I mean I feel like any character reveals and any character in a film unless there's a lot of uh, voiceover, most characters are going to reveal themselves externally, and especially when you have a fundamentally inarticulate character like Zapano, who I think expresses himself eloquently. By his actions, mm-hmm. so he is, and, and and he expresses himself in such a way that we can see something that he can't see. We 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 actually we actually understand things about himself 
before he understands them. So for example, he doesn't understand that his pursuit of, uh, of carnal pleasure is in fact unsatisfying. He doesn't know why he gets drunk, but we do. He can't see that he actually has affection for her. There, there are moments when you can almost see him fighting affection for her because he wants to treat her severely. So I feel like, I, I think the film perfectly sets it up to tell us that this is not just about her, but this is ultimately about her effect on him. So, you know, when, we, when he leaves her for the last time and you say to yourself, well, I mean, that could be the end of the film. And then you realize it's going to keep going without her. And then you realize, no, she's not going to come back. We're going to find out how never seeing her again has affected him. So I, I don't I don't know how to I couldn't argue somebody into thinking that that actually is worth caring about. But for me, it was. And I think a lot of it had to do with an idea that you and I have talked about throughout this show. And that is that um, films teach you how to watch them. And I think that Fellini is teaching you how to watch this film. He tells you from the beginning, I'm going to give you these three characters and you're going to have to infer what's going on internally from what they're showing us externally. And that to me is an application of a neorealist approach to reality embodied in a slightly different kind of film. And, and one way he does this, um, and this is why this, this was something that, that, the first time through I was sort of bothered by because I because it, it felt like like there was like I couldn't I mean bothered in the best way that that it was something that sort of was like working on my brain is the fact that there is there is a everybody here has histories they're not talking about mm -hmm. so like 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 one of the great ghosts of this movie is Rosa yeah, yeah. like all we, we learn in the opening scene that she was on a some sort of similar track that that Jessalmine is on and she died. Well, that's all we know. Mm -hmm. And we know that whenever she is brought up, Zampano has a particular kind of reaction where he doesn't want to talk about it, but there's something there. There's some, whatever that trauma is, it's there. And um, that's exacerbated by the fool. And the fool seems to know something about Rosa potentially, or there's something there we know. And, and then Zampano and the fool have a history. But we don't know that. I, my, one of my favorite scenes to, to, that highlights this is the first time when they're at the restaurant before Zampano leaves with the other woman. Um, uh, Jessalmine is trying to like learn about him. And she says, you know, where were you born? He says, in my hometown. Or where are you from? My hometown. Where were you born? In my father's house. And it's yes. just like, it's like, okay, well, we're not going to, he's not somebody who's going to, this is to your point of teaching us how to watch this. He's never going to communicate that stuff to us in words. Um, and he's telling us that there, but, but this movie seems so rich because there is this kind of history that people don't talk about. And there are people like that. There are families like that. I come from a family like that, where there's a lot of us who just, we don't share things and it, mm -hmm. it, 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 it creates a kind of tension around that. So I find that really effective in this movie even though there's a part of me that's like i like i want to i want to like crack the case of well, what is it about this these dynamics because there's a history we're not seeing there but i think that that helps us understand some of the motivations that don't make sense otherwise like um i mean we can get to i think we should talk about the fool yeah. um because because so i the, the introduction of the fool is great because it it begins with jesselmina leaving 
she finally does leave. Uh, and there's a part of me that's so relieved when that happens. And I think, oh, okay. So maybe, yeah. maybe Zampano is like just part of this movie. And now we're going on to the further adventures of Jesselmina. And there's this beautiful moment where she stops by the side of the road and she's playing. I can't tell if she's playing with the insects or the leaves or what she's like putting on her hand and blowing off. And then you see this, this is a Fellini-esque moment, this weird marching band of three people in apparently just in the middle of nowhere. And she, she follows them like, like they're the Pied Piper. And then all of a sudden we, we, we immediately move from that to a religious procession through this town. Um, and uh and then that moves to this you know high wire performance in that same town like it's such a that's such a a cool transition and that becomes our introduction to the fool yeah and there's a yeah and and there's a little you know the the high wire act and that that's a little that's a little very felini-esque as well it's a very very circus like very clownish um the the procession is interesting because uh i forget the exact details but felini had to actually pay the priest to have, it wasn't the exact feast day, but he needed all those. All yeah, those. they moved it up by a few days so he could. Yeah, film it. yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to say say a little something about the casting in this film in connection with the fool. Richard Basehart, um, who plays the fool, uh, was an American, uh, and we could talk a little bit about dubbing in this film later on as well. Uh, but the, the reason why Fellini wanted him was um, he had seen him in a film a few years before called 14 Hours by uh, Henry Hathaway, which I have not seen. I've seen several Hathaway films, but not that one. And that film, by the way, was Grace Kelly's film debut. Um, anyway, Basehart played a character, a suicidal character who stood on a ledge for four, for the whole duration of the film. And when uh, when Basehart asked Fellini why he wanted him to play a clown or a fool, Fellini replied, if you did what you did, if you did what you could do in 14 hours, you can do anything. So even though, of course, it's not based hard up on the wire, that was still the inspiration for putting him in that role. And and the f- so then, then we get to eventually the you know that they're all at the same circus, and here's where we start to sort of yeah. smash these characters together. And the relationship between the fool and Jesselmina is so uh it's very it's it's a very interesting relationship because it's not the same as her relationship with Zampano. But he's a hard person to get your hands around because he seems to say one thing that immediately says the other mm-hmm. um, uh, because because he both offers an opportunity to leave with him, but then sort of says, I would never take you with me. And it's like, well, well, which is it? Uh, so so I, I find that relationship so interesting. And, and he, you know, and again, on her arc, right, he presents her with another act, another which uh, we don't really get to see much of, but is genuinely kind of funny. Like it's a like that, like. You know, her playing yeah. the, I don't know what instrument that is either, which is both a trombone and a trumpet. It has a trombone <laughs> with valves, but, um, you know, but, but then, and then that, that leads up to his continual like aggravation of Zampano. And, and we realize this is a, again, a great telling moment about Zampano that he, the, he's more upset that Zamp or that the fool is, talking to Jesselmina, working with Jesselmina than he is seemingly even by getting his act interrupted, which is his livelihood. Mm-hmm. That, that, that that's the big thing that, so that tells you something also about uh, whether he views Jesselmina as a possession or as, as, you know, something else like uh, that, the anger that that sparks is really interesting. You know, we talked last week when we talked about Gilda about this notion of, 
not having the full, the full backstory to explain why relationships are the way they are. And I think, as you pointed out, that's certainly true here, too. We don't know why there's such enmity between the fool and Zampano. It seems to be, and it's interesting to me, too, because um, Fellini himself was uh, was during the filming, during, during this film, he was in um, Freudian uh, psychotherapy. So, so here's a guy who's kind of used to delving deeply into psychology, giving us these characters and not telling, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what happened between the fool and Zapano that, that, that explains why there's this enmity. I think it gets back to what we're talking about in Gilda. And that is this kind of at times unmotivated, you know, that Iago like I've referenced earlier, Iago like malignancy. It's like, there's something, they, they are fundamentally opposed beings. Uh, and that's why, you know, Critics like Pauline Kael have wanted to see them kind of as archetypes. Um, and I don't know if that's necessary or not, but they certainly are opposite kind of characters. The fool is, um, you know, Kael saw him as kind of being the mind. And he's the one that has that really significant line about, you know, even a pebble has purpose. And this in inspires her to think that maybe she has a purpose, which is to stay with Zampano. And Zampano is obviously supposed to be the unthinking brute, kind of the force of the body, uh, the, the passions. So, you know, whether you read it as that kind of a uh, archetypal conflict or simply saying, these are two people who are so different, they just can't stand each other. Uh, and that's just, that's what happens. Just like we can't explain why people fall in love. Maybe we can't explain why people hate, they just hate each other. Well, it may, it may, the thing I thought about as I was writing notes on this was like, we have watched a lot of movies where we say sometimes it's just a compulsion, whether it's pickpocket or M or whatever, mm -hmm. that there is this thing of like, he's like, because he even says like, I, I, I don't know why I just yeah. can't, I can't not do it. You know, like, yeah. there's something about looking at Zampano that makes him, you know, makes him need to, whether it's a competition he has in him or something. But yeah, like, that actually seems very believable to me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now one of the things one of the other magical elements about this movie that that the fool i think is the first one to uh sort of sh be part of this transition this transformation is um we haven't talked about music in this movie yet but right. there is there is uh what i'll call jesselmina's theme because i don't know what a, what a, but like she first talks about it as something that she heard well, they were in a barn and when it was raining one night, so it already has this sort of magical entrance into the world. And she, so, so the first time we hear it, I think is her telling that story to Z uh, Zampano and sort of singing it and, mm. and kind of wondering like, could I ever learn to play the trumpet so that I could play this? And then out of nowhere, this is the tune that the fool keeps playing. Mm -hmm. He keeps playing that, um, that tune. And then, you know, this is this becomes at the end of the movie. This is the thing that Zampano hears the uh, the washerwoman um, yeah. singing, and this this creates that connection. And then this is the last thing we hear as Zampano is as we're pulling away from Zampano on the beach. We hear this tune now as part of the score. Um, so so that's also like one of those. I mean, magical elements of this. Like, what is the what is this thing that is moving among these people? And, you know, and Jesselmina is drawn to this tune. It it sort of appears in her life and she's drawn to it when she hears it in the rain. She's drawn to it when she hears the fool playing it. Well, since you brought up the score, we have to, I have to say a little bit about who wrote the score, right? This is uh, Nino Rota, who was Fellini's collaborator throughout his career. Rota was um, preternaturally um, 
productive. He wrote about 150 scores during his career from the 30s to 1979. He averaged three scores a year over 46 years. Uh, he had one year, in fact, this year, 1954. He wrote 13 film wow. scores in one year. Um, he was nominated for the best score for both Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. He won it for Godfather 2. Uh, Godfather won. This is, this is an interesting story. Godfather won. The nomination was withdrawn because the Academy decided that he had self-plagiarized, that he had reworked a, a score from an earlier film. What's really odd about who got the Academy Award for Best Score that year, it was Charlie Chaplin's Limelight from 1951 because it had not been shown in L.A. until 1972, and that made it eligible for the Academy Award. Uh. And then actually won it. <laughs> so anyway, very strange. Huh. Um, so you you mentioned you mentioned the fool. I mean the the one one of the 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 big moments in this movie is the uh, when Zampano is in jail for trying to attack the fool. The, this conversation mm -hmm. that they have, and the uh, the 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 parable of the pebble. Yeah. Um, what do you make of that in terms of like like? uh jesselmina finds a lot of meaning in that um what do you think we're to make of that that parable oh um i don't know it it, it it seems to me that the fool if the fool has a philosophy that that appears to be his philosophy i i think I think what's hard to know what to make of it is what effect the fool intends for that to have i think it's a way of offering Jelsamina an option to make a, to make her decision to make her choice and so if if even a pebble has a purpose then he is i think he's trying to inspire her to discover her purpose although it seems as though he also uses it as a kind of an excuse or a kind of a motivation as you observed earlier to kind of push her away it's almost though he's saying you know you, you know, discover your purpose. I think I know your purpose. And he kind of makes sure that she stays with Zampano at the same time. Um, the other reason, the other thing I, I make of this, something, the other thing I find interesting about this is that um, he, he talks about the stars as well. And so, you know, this is a film which is very elemental because the road is obviously the earth. And so the pebble is uh, symbolic of that, but then the sky obviously is symbolic of a higher of a higher purpose. So you could argue that in a sense that image of the pebble and a purpose and the stars in the sky um, that that kind of that, that kind of suggests the arc of the soul as we talked about earlier with with Gelsimina. Oh, and and if if we're paying attention, so so I thought a lot about the stars too because. In the final scene mm -hmm. of the movie at the beach, yeah. when Zampano is having this breakdown, right? I mean, one of the images we get is him face down in the sand, sort of among yeah. the pebbles. But before that, we see him looking up at the stars. Yeah. Yeah. And there is this sense of like, do the stars have meaning? Do the pebbles have meaning? Do I have meaning? I I, yeah, I mean, I, I that 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 hit me really hard on rewatch. And of course, he's on the beach, he's looking at the stars. He's by the by the by the seashore, so it brings the film full circle, as you observed earlier. And he's crying out. So we have all four elements: we have earth, air, fire, and water, uh, earth, air, sky, and water. Anyway, so yeah, so it's all there. So absolutely, you know, and and I, I actually I I thought that was really powerful because, like the song, seems to float between people without being communicated. Jesselmina, we never see her at least express this 
philosophy to Zampano, mm. nor would he necessarily be able to hear it and understand it. But there is some sense that somehow maybe it has moved to him like the song moves without being explained. Maybe mm-hmm. this philosophy is moving and he's having his moment of realization at, you know, potentially in, in you know, in that, uh, in that final scene. Um, so this then sets up the, the, the confrontation between, um, I guess maybe we should, let's talk about convent first. Let's do this in order. Is there anything else you want to say about the convent scene? Cause that, that also jumped out at me. You know, if we're thinking about this as the series of episodes, like, uh, as you said, she, you know, if she is this this character who is this holy fool or this saint, it's interesting that they actually go to a convent in Italy, which is the birthplace of, of you know, monasticism. You know, so so if we're thinking about Benedict and Francis and people like that, like these are all these are all Italian saints, um, and and this is another moment where she's invited to to stay, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, and and this seems like one of the moments when they drive away that, that there is this kind of both this sadness in Jessalmina, but also this sense that maybe the nuns have taught her that she's already a nun of, of a sort, right? Because they draw this comparison of, we also move every two years. So we don't get too attached to any place. We too follow the person we are wedded to in a, yes, you know, in yes. a particular yeah. kind of way, but it's also at the convent that she offers to marry Zampano. Mm-hmm. Too. And it's also the convent where we see, you know, I mean, Zampano has done plenty of things that we disapprove of, but it's the first time where we actually see him attempt to do something truly criminal mm-hmm. when he's trying to uh, to steal. I forget what it was. He's trying to put those ex photos. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and, and, that, and she has to make obviously a moral choice not to, not to, to, to participate in that. So I think that, that that's kind of an important scene too, I think, because it shows you that she's not without, um, a moral sensibility and she has well it gets back to the innocence to the purity of, of, of her soul that she's not been um corrupted by Zampano. um and again that's so i think the convent scene kind of um reinforces the idea that if you are going to live a kind of saintly life you have to do it in the world mm-hmm. uh and to do it in a convent is a kind of temptation that you need to resist Absolutely. Well, and, and that that's interesting thinking about Fellini's relationship to religion, where you know that it's that that he's he's not going to embrace traditional Catholicism or something like right. that. But this is like you say, this is the temptation to that. Um, it's interesting to think about monasticism as a temptation as opposed to as a you know as a spiritual practice. I, I actually really like that. Um, and and that that lines up with 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 like you said the Franciscan view as well, which is you know far more rooted in living in the world among the people, the world, things yeah, like that. Exactly. Um, so then we get to the 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 confrontation between Zampano and the fool, and uh, the fool is hurt and the fool is dead, and how this kind of breaks Jesselmina in a way. I mean that, that that if she's somebody who has this potential to float through the world. Not it, not unaffected, but 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 uh, this kind of resilience. Like this is a moment when that that see this seems to be the thing that breaks her. Yeah. Well, well, and, and, yeah. I, I think it breaks her because um, she loves the fool uh, in a way differently from how she loves Zampano. It also, in a sense, breaks her. Oh, I, 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 if if she in fact is also the fool. I think the death of the fool is at least symbolically part of her own death as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's so that that's a moment that you know she really, as a result, can't can't recover from that because 
something inside her has died. And, and also, Zampano has, she, he's really stepped over a line. Mm-hmm. I, I think whether she can remain with him now that he is actually a murderer is a very different kind of relationship than being able to be with him when he was a performer. She's, we, I've already alluded to the fact that she was challenged by the idea that he might be a thief and she resists that. But now he's really stepped over the line. And it's, it's interesting because it's not, it's not an out and out rejection of him. If you think of her as a kind of a, I, I maybe Christ's figure is pushing it far, far too far. But if you think of her as somebody expressing a certain kind of, of unconditional love, it's not as though she says, I no longer care for you. I no longer love you. But what you have done has broken me. So she really, in a sense, takes on herself the burden of his crime. Uh, and that's what breaks her. Well, and and it's important to note, this is a, as I pointed out, this is a movie where it is constantly presenting Jesselmina and us with opportunities for her to leave him. And he's the one who leaves her. Yeah. I mean, that that's really significant that, that even this, she doesn't walk away, but he's the one who walks away because he there to a degree, he realizes that, that, that she is now the symbol of what he's done, you know, you, you know, and, and, and so, so then we get this, this cut to what we realize is, five years later, yeah. um, which is, you know, so, so again, I also love how, and that makes me stop and think, you know, I've been, I haven't really been thinking about time in this. Like, I don't know how much time has elapsed over the course of this, this mm-hmm. film. I mean, have they been on the road for three months, five years? I don't know. because. Yeah. And they, but when you get that time jump and they tell you that it makes me go back and say, Oh, I wasn't even tracking, Yeah, you know, tr- tracking this. Um, and here we get we hear we get Zampano performing in another circus. He's sort of moved on, but it's it's a it's a pretty lifeless performance, you know mm-hmm. that 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 we see. And what's interesting is it's the one time we don't see the completion of the trick. Just right. as he's about to bend the chains, it fades into him drunk at the restaurant instead of because I think every other time we see the whole performance, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this one no, noticeably we don't. Um, and then so so then this leads to his uh you know getting thrown out of the bar beaten up by the people ending up at the seashore and sort of having this um having this moment yeah um we've talked a lot about this movie are there other things you want to uh you want to you want to talk about with this well since we've had, we've just ended on soprano um i want to say just a couple things about anthony quinn the actor um uh you may recall a long time ago now, a year and a half ago, so we watched the Oxbow incident, uh, and Quinn has a supporting role in the Oxbow incident. Uh, he was the first Mexican-American to win an Oscar. Uh, he was supporting actor for Viva Zapata, uh, same year as High Noon, uh, when Marlon Brando lost Best Actor to Gary Cooper. He actually won his second Oscar. Uh, he was Paul Gargan in uh, Minnelli's uh, Lust for Life. Uh, with Kirk Douglas. So a real, really fine actor. But uh, Fellini uh, was chasing after him because all three actors that Fellini cast were in Italy at the time in the same film. Um, and and uh, um, he wasn't, Quinn wasn't interested. And then, according to Quinn, he watched Evie Tolini, which is the Fellini film that's most influenced Scorsese, Scorsese 
Uh, he watched that with, get this, what, imagine watching a film with, in, in this company. He watched it with Rossellini uh, and Ingrid Bergman. Um <laughs> uh, and and he thought this is a masterpiece and this is the guy that wants me to make a movie with him so of course i will so that's that's how quinn ended up in uh, in this film uh i have to mention um movie we've talked about like movies appearing in other movies um just by happenstance this weekend i was watching with my two two of my nephews the pixar movie luca which is one of the more most recent pixar movies which takes place in italy somewhere in the 60s maybe and we were watching it and and they were going it was going through this townscape and on the wall outside of one of the houses was a poster for la strada and i stopped them and i'm like i just watched that movie so so it was i because i saw jesselmina's face and i saw la strada and thought oh my goodness this is this is even showing up there as an indicator of like post-war italy in this you know disney pixar movie and a couple of weeks ago, it wouldn't have made, meant anything to you. So. You're absolutely right. No, and now I was I was so excited to tell them this is this really important movie. <laughs> um, I I adored uh, this movie, and and it's one that I um, I think I'm going to just keep thinking about. And 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 you know I it was it was so different than eight and a half. But then, like I said, I think I see I feel how we get from one to the other. Um, and both are movies that I, I really appreciate. Um, I my other thing is I really want to see uh, Knights of uh, Cabaria. Cabaria, yeah, um, because yeah. that's supposedly Giulietta Messini's really great performance, mm-hmm. and if yeah. that's better than this, yeah. I'm in. Like I, I have <laughs> to see that. Uh, so Barrett, we are getting to the end of the show. What do you have for us for next week? Well, considering in this theme of uh, following up on Sight and Sound's top ten, uh, but the films that were in one of our top 10 that was not in the sight and sound top 10 uh and not even on the top 100 this in this case but that is um quentin tarantino's pulp fiction like this which is I, I know you don't really favorite. like that film very much sam but I'm <laughs> i'll suffer through watching it. pulp fiction again <laughs> uh, i i'm i'm so excited for this uh barrett thank you so much for uh for recommending la strada this is a this is a this is a life changer. Like this is this is a big one for me. Um, thank you for recommending it. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have. But we will be back next week to talk about. I can't believe it. Pulp Fiction in the video store. <laughs>